Hi, I'm your host, James Barrow, a creative turned marketing director with over 20 years' experience in the advertising industry. Join me as I go behind the scenes with a range of innovative thinkers. Hear what inspires them, their processes, and the methods to their madness. Find insights that can help unlock your creative potential and apply them in your life, career, and business. Right here on The B-Side with James Barrow. How can we use movement and mindfulness to help improve our potential as professionals and in the way we live our lives broadly? In episode 10 of The B-Side, I speak to Tony Clement, data strategy consultant and founder of The Dojo, a human performance consultancy which aims to help people achieve their professional best through personal growth. Tony has over 15 years of digital marketing strategy and analytics experience. Having held senior positions in creative agencies such as Big Spaceship in New York, Wonderman in London, and Leo Burnett in Sydney, Tony now runs his own data strategy consulting practice with clients in New York, Sydney, Melbourne, and London. We discuss how Tony has made it his mission to help organizations and professionals diagnose the data stories that are of the highest value to them, along with how he applies his experience as a yoga instructor, Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner, and team leader to train the deep skills of people towards higher levels of performance in life and in work. Tony is one of the nicest, smartest, and probably fittest guys I've ever met in the industry. I really enjoy chatting to him. It's a deep and really insightful episode. I'm sure you're going to love it. Cheers. All right, Tony Clement, we're here. We're together after 15 long years, man. I can't believe how time really does fly, doesn't it? The last time I saw you was... 15 years ago at Leo Burnett, we were both essentially kids. How have you been? What's been happening? <laughs> growing up, dude. It's been a lot of growing up. <laughs> a, lot of, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of adulting. <laughs> a lot of adulting, yeah. I've, look, I've been watching you from afar. You're doing well. You're doing really well. You do, you've got this adulting thing down, Batman. I've been, although we haven't really had the chance to speak a lot, I've been following you on social media and I'm super happy to have you uh, on the show and just to be able to catch up again and have a chat about what you've been doing and mm. how life's been and what's been happening. Yeah, it's been, it's been a journey of adulting and um, <laughs> working, in, working in advertising agencies will you know, kind of force you to look at your life pretty hard if you do it for long enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? So like it's, it's, in, it's, it's been a, yeah, it's been a deep journey. And like, I remember being back at Leo's with you and just like, you know, pitch after pitch kind of thing. And that was a great, that was a great moment in time though. So it's cool to reconnect with you. It's cool to be back here in Australia. It's a pleasure to be on, on your show with you and getting to chat and catch up. Oh, thank you so much. It's funny you say that. It was a really interesting and defining moment. I've always looked back on my time at Leo Burnett quite fondly. And I think it was the first agency. It wasn't the first advertising agency I'd worked in, but it was the first advertising agency I truly loved. Mm. And my first stint, you know, down at McMahon's Point, um, it was just the right group of people at the right time. There was this sort of... It was a cohort of kindred spirits. It's the only way I could really describe it, you know. And I would walk down to your office and you and Mark Pollard would be there with Todd Sampson and you guys would be jamming on some strategy and you'd invite me in and, and I'd have a chat to you about something. Then we'd move on to MMA or jujitsu <laughs> or something. We'd just start talking about everything and everything just got like thrown around in this really organic fashion and I thought wow this is what it's meant to be about yeah that's what I love too man. I love the fact that we were able to be human 
And hmm. the fact that we were able to sit down and talk about all aspects of life, even though we were sitting in an advertising agency. And sometimes a lot of those conversations we'd have about life had nothing to do about the work that we were working on at the time, but it was a place for us to bring that stuff and talk about it together in whichever part of the journey in our own lives that we were in. Like I remember sitting in that, that pod you're talking about with those people and just having good conversations about things that were troubling or interesting at the time in society. And, you know, that was yeah. probably the first taste of that, I think, in, in, in my career. So I hear you. Yeah. 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 What about that slippery dip we had in the middle of the agency as well? That was a thing of legend, wasn't it? For our listeners, we literally had this white spiral slippery dip, uh, slippery slide that went from the top floor, which we were all on. Tony was at the back of the top floor or the front of the top floor. I was at the back of the top floor. And in the middle, there was this void. And in that void was this spiral slippery dip. And you could literally slide down three levels down this thing and, and wind up at the bottom in Starcom or whatever it was. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Stuff I'm really best. Yeah. 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 Fun times, man. Fun times. But hey, why don't we start there or even let's go way back. Why don't you start uh, with, you know, where you're from, your background, how you ended up in advertising. Let's, let's yeah, start yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I've got a bit of a, um, a mixed history, I guess. Like I'm a, I'm a third generation New Yorker that didn't grow up in New York, but grew up all over the States and then went, moved to Australia when I was like 14, 15. And so the, I guess the thing about that is like, I think in total, I lived in 26 places in like 20 years or something like that. So a lot of moving around the United States and like, you know, DC, New York, LA, Seattle, um, and then to Sydney eventually. And I think the thing that kind of shocked me the most when I got to Australia was, um, you know, how, how laid back the Australian culture, um, is with just, um, day-to-day life. You know, people just go down to the beach and they can surf and they can be easy with each other. And there's not really kind of like a, a motive of, you know, Hey, like, you know, you're, you're trying to get me or I have to get one up on you, which is a very U S kind of thing. And so, and so coming from that kind of world into this Australian culture, I found myself, um, getting more interested, I guess, in just like different societies, different kinds of people, different kinds of, you know, points of view, which then led me into a, a job in research. So I ended up in research kind of, you know, wanting to do that kind of uh, analysis with data and using data to kind of figure out the patterns of culture and society, but really just ended up, mm. you know, crunching numbers about FMCG, which wasn't exactly, <laughs> which wasn't exactly what I wanted, right? Um, yeah. and, and it then, was or wasn't exactly what you wanted. Oh, <laughs> uh, dude, totally wasn't. Totally wasn't. Yeah, totally, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Just, just, it was just not the thing that I was looking for. Um, but then what happened is um, I heard about this thing called like planning, like advertising mm. planning. I'd, I'd never really heard about it. So I started working at um, Ogilvy and Mather and then uh, learned a bit more about what planning is and, you know, looking about the consumer and what that means. And then my world of data kind of changed after understanding a bit more about putting the data around humans in terms of how they behave and yeah. insights, so to speak, that could live around that. And then, so, yeah, I kind of, you know, um, as life kind of does to you, it kind of pushes you to grow up quickly. So we, we, we had our first kid when I was like 26 and just going into my second job. So actually Leo Burnett was when uh, I had Sonny or we had Sonny 
So I was yeah. going through this really weird phase of like, oh, now I have to like push myself from a professional standpoint because I, I need to provide. And, you know, uh, I'm working with these great people who think about humans and insights and life in such a different way that it became yeah. this kind of melting pot where I really kind of fell in love with the idea of using, you know, emotions, um, insight and data together. And I'm only saying this in hindsight, now the fact that it's passed, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I really wanted, even though I was in creative, I really felt like I wanted to formalize that sharing of insights between departments. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think once it was Mark Hollis, he was hosting a creative uh, meeting and he was talking about the work and, you know, I love Mark Hollis. He's so blunt. And I said, look, I reckon everyone in the creative department should really do a week or two in each of the, each of the various divisions, spend some time in planning, spend some time in account service, you know, just really understand the nuts and the bolts of the business we're in because we all have different lenses. And I think Mark, God bless him, said, what do you want to do? Go and be a suit or something. <laughs> and I kind of felt, and I know he was joking. I know he was joking. But I felt like I could say that in that environment because totally. I didn't feel like we had those silos as much as other agencies. And I didn't realize that until I left. I didn't realize how, you know, and it's, it's weird, isn't it? Hindsight's mm. twenty twenty, right? The thing that I say to people when I talk about my history and planning, I guess, is that I've been really, really blessed by being around people who have um, grown me as a human, you know, mm. through my work. Mm. So people like, like Mark Pollard and Catherine Apte and, and Justin Graham and then they're mm. going to BMF and working with Jeremy and, and, and Gareth and a bunch of others. And all of them, I guess, underneath their skill set were really well-developed human beings or developing yeah. human beings. And they were conscious mm. of, they were conscious of their development. Um, and in that there was like a, there is an empathy that is cultivated amongst people who, uh, who want to grow, who want to, be more, I guess, incisive about this condition that we're in. And then mm. from that, and I think from and through that, there was a bond that's created with, with others who are of a kindred spirit. And I feel like that kind of chemistry was, was maybe not deliberate, but it definitely was there. And that's how I look back on, on that experience with Leo Burnett in the sense of why was it important to me at that time in my career and why was it maybe unique i reflect on that quite a bit especially when like yourself you know we're in these leadership positions and we're trying to not so much mimic but we're trying to recreate the right environment and combination of values and culture and people that can deliver outcomes in a way that just feels so effortless and it just feels so organic you know so it's this kind of organized chaos so to speak you know but mm. it, it is a matter of having those right elements in play at the right time it, so after uh, so after leo's you went to uh, so I, was, I was at bmf for a couple of years um mm. working again in, in a you know really big diverse planning team about 13 14 people and it was it was really fortunate for me to go from leo's to that because it was almost a continuation of that kind of culture yeah where it, it felt a little bit more like everyone has a very specific discipline and the craft of the discipline, whether it's media or comms or data or brand is um, almost more codified. And because of that increased level of structure, there is almost more um, awareness of how to actually apply your practice. And so I would say yeah. in DMF that kind of really honed 
my practice of data strategy. BMF always has been a really strong creative agency. I would suspect the reason for such consistent creativity is a healthy respect for insights and data. And it feels as though they are confident in the fact that they are marketers. A lot of the work they did, I'm not sure if it's the same because I can't say I'm up to date with their campaigns, but Mm -hmm. a lot of the work they did had very clear marketing objectives. It was always about effectiveness. So there was there was a really strong push and like being very rigorous around, you know, the whatever approach we we're putting forward in terms of comms or creative or digital or, you know, when social was just kind of starting starting to happen. How can we put as much, um, yeah, I guess rigor and decision making frameworks around that thinking so that, you know, there'd be some kind of foundation for the thinking to stand upon. So I, I just remember that being a really big part of the um, the culture there with it being about marketing, it being about communications. We're not trying to reinvent business so much uh, behind mm. advertising and communications. You know, this is before the consultancies kind of made that push, but it was, it was very much about that. And that kind of built on the culture of Leo Burnett, which is like, you know, Leo's was like, we're about human beings and how human beings have insight that lead to ideas. BMF mm. was much more like, okay, now we have that kind of fertile ground. How do we kind of put that into shapes and take those shapes forward. So business people can put business language around it. Um, yeah. So that, that, that I think is, is, is a combination that, that helps build your analytical, but also your creative instincts. And that's what yeah. I found at least in my experience. Yeah. And after BMF, where, where did you go there? Cause you spent some time overseas, didn't you? You went to yeah. London. Yeah. So I did, did eight years overseas. So we went to London uh, for three years, and I worked at uh, Wonderman over um, over there on um, yeah, basically a lot of different brands with Microsoft and Ford uh, primarily as a strategy dude, and then mm. ended up going back to New York for five years, working with um, Mark Pollard again at, at Big Spaceship in New York. That's um, right, Big Spaceship, yeah. yeah. And then after after that, uh, I was like, well, so I was at Big Spaceship, and I was like, hey, it kind of dawned on me. There was this moment I had where like, where does this end? You know, so yeah. you're in, you're in an agency and you kind of go, well, where does this end? Like I'm, you know, in my mid thirties now and I'm like, I got two, two kids at this point. And so I look around me for the examples of people in the industry who are kind of my age and where are they? What, what are they doing? And what's their quality hmm. of life? And I kind of see a few different paths. Like one, you stay in the industry and it becomes really hard and it's, it's, you're really stressed out and it's, it's quite difficult and you kind of, that's kind of one road. Another road is that you kind of leave and start your own thing and it becomes, you know, your own kind of creative pursuit. And the other is you end up, you know, kind of checking out altogether on a farm somewhere off grid. Um, yeah. So I I thought at that point, like, let's like, they all sound interesting, but for me, I was like, okay, I I felt a calling from my experiences to try to create something new. And that's where roll deep kind of came up. And then Mm -hmm. uh, I began that data consultancy business. And then after that, I then created the dojo, which is um, two different creative pursuits that, that I've had yeah. a lot of joy doing in the last few years. I really want to go into both of those things. But first, before we do, I want to know something hidden about you. What's your B-side? Oh, I, I would say maybe a year ago would have been um, all the, I guess, all the the mindfulness and maybe even spirituality and yeah. the, the pursuit for spiritual growth through physicality. I guess the... The thing that was becoming more and more apparent for me started in, in New York when I stumbled upon this group called Seal Fit. And what it was, it was one night where I was kind of looking at doing something that was like a, was a more of a pursuit or a challenge. 
And so I Googled, you know, toughest challenge in the world because I wanted to do something epic because I was feeling that, that burn of like, oh, you know, I've got two kids in the mid-30s, I'm getting a bit older, what can I do? And so I stumbled across this outdoor article, outdoor magazine article, which had, you know, the world's most intense fitness challenge. I said, oh, this is pretty cool. And so I read about it and it's a thing called Seal Fit and they run these camps called Kokoro Camps and they go for, it's basically the first two days of like Navy uh, Seal Hell Week. And they <laughs> have been running them for, for a few years and the purpose of them running them, they used to run them for people who were intending to join the Navy SEALs to get them ready to go to basically qualifications. Hmm. And on a whim kind of thing, I was like, oh, that sounds really challenging. I'll sign up for that. So I signed up for it. And it, what that exposed me to, it exposed me to this whole world of basically the Navy SEALs, but really underneath that high performance teams and how high performance cultures are put together and how they, how they work and hmm. the, the rituals and the discipline and the standards and the, the mindset, all those different aspects. And I just became really connected to all those things for some reason. I feel like deep down inside being a third generation New Yorker, I also understood that I also learned that most of my family before me had all been in the military and it kind of yeah. stopped with me. And so yeah. this, this kind of narrative kind of awoke something in me. Yeah. And so yeah. the journey of kind of going to and getting ready for this, this kind of two day event really helped me practice and embody a lot of the warrior spirit of what I think had been latent in me for a really, really long time. Yeah. And then that kind of created a key kind of pillar, I guess, in one of the modes that I can access for myself mentally and physically, which is like, if, if I know that I'm very capable of doing 20 times more than I think I'm capable of doing because I've experienced it and practiced it and, and, and embodied it to a certain extent and that everyone is capable of that much more than they think they are. And mm -hmm. in that there's a sense of empowerment. And so from a, I guess, a spirituality standpoint, taking things that have more principles and maybe less Western structures like discipline, um, growth mindset, things like accountability and integrity and bringing them mm. into your daily, daily practices of how you live your life became a big part of me connecting uh, my physicality to my spirituality. So that, that was a realization you had around about that time where you were thinking to yourself, what is next? What, where do I find this fulfillment? There is something missing in my life, both personally, spiritually, and professionally. Is that where you had that epiphany that you had to start your own thing by combining all these factors? Or did it sort of slowly take shape? That's a great question because I think what was happening was that the, the being in the agency environment, it became clear to me that I was very capable of doing building data practices within creative companies. And I cared about that a lot, but there was still a disconnection between that and doing something that um, was one independent of the, I guess, an organization, so to speak, and two more deeply connected to my personal why, um, yeah. why, why am I here? Why am I doing this? And so as a part of the, I guess the, the journey into seal fit would they, they put you down a, a path of inquiry as what is your why? And so mm. that, that takes a really long time. And what that exposed to me is that, you know, my why is very much is like, why do I exist? I exist to be a spirit filled teacher, warrior and student. And so mm. in those ingredients, I was then able to take those ingredients and go, okay, if that's who I am, if I'm a spirit filled teacher, warrior and student, how do I take those ideas and then take this energy that I have that I've been using 
for other businesses and agencies and create something for myself. Teacher, warrior, and student, those things traditionally were never exclusive of each other. You were a teacher, you were a scholar, you were a student and a warrior at the same time. You think of Sun Tzu and Miyamoto and Musashi and... All those things you're talking about, about right there became... What it did is it validated the insight I stumbled upon through my life where it's like, oh, is this something that's been true for a long time for others? And then you look back to the other cultures that go back mm-hmm. thousands of years to, yeah, you know, the, the gladiators, the Spartans, even their first yogic practitioners, mm-hmm. you know, that this combination of, of mind and body and learning and teaching mm-hmm. and everything is connected. The confidence that came from that, like I never would have started my own consultancy had I not gone through that process. That took about two years of just kind of churning internally and then working physically and kind of having realizations that go, hey, like, if you're ever going to have a crack at this, now would be a time. It's so important, though, to if you're going to start a business, it is such an, an emotional investment, and it has to be aligned to your why. Otherwise, you mm-hmm. wouldn't have the resilience to be able to, and you wouldn't have the motivation to go with it, right? I mean, a hundred percent. And this is the thing, like finding finding the alignment in who you are. So a lot of people mm-hmm. talk about starting businesses, and you know, it's it's difficult to do for all the reasons that you're you're mentioning, and it's even harder to sustain if you're out of alignment of what was the reason why yeah. you created it, and it it it, it burns. And so mm-hmm. what I see is that when people are employed and they're working in places that are distinctly out of alignment with who they are and maybe what their values are, that it causes stress, it causes bad stress, and then that is not is a, that's a thing that's not sustainable or healthy for teams, individuals, or even companies. And so having the awareness to kind of clock that that's what's happening to you is, is almost like, um, is a trick, is a trick unto itself. But I I see Mm -hmm. it so often with people working in companies that they're just there for all the wrong reasons. Um, usually coming from a place of fear. You've talked to us about the motivation and the inspiration for aligning your personal mission or your why Talk to us a little bit about what that business is. Like, what is it you actually do? You've got two streams uh, that mm-hmm. you focus on. One is the dojo. And the other stream is We Roll Deep. So the dojo is really, we, the reason why we created the dojo, and I'm in this with a partner who lives over in Italy, who I work with in London. But the reason why we created it is because what we realized was a lot of the things that we learned in our professional careers in agencies and worked for clients, like the things that actually mattered, we learned those things not in work, but actually out of work. So, you know, it was the personal practices of like, you know, martial arts, of yoga, of creative writing, of, you know, doing things like seal fit, doing things that actually were more mindful practices that those those things around work that grew us as human beings were the things that we brought to work that actually helped us be successful, quote unquote, in the area that we were in. And so I kind of thought, huh, like if that's true for us, like I wonder if that's true in more scenarios where if people have a practice outside of their work, so to speak, that they're able to bring more of themselves to work. Uh, And so the dojo is really a way for us to kind of break down the wall between you are a human outside of work and then you're a professional human inside of work. And then actually the, the truth is that we're just humans always. And if we train the skills and if we train the skills that matter more than, let's say, being able to write copy or do SEO analysis or to balance a 
profit and loss sheet, we train the deep skills like empathy and awareness and uh, adaptability and focus and grit. What if you were able to train those skills in a way that can help you grow as a person that would then lead you to become a better professional? Mm -hmm. so, so the dojo is, is uh, a coaching program that uses your, bo your body to train your mind. And then right. through that, help teams work together in ways they may have not found before to solve complex problems that they may not have approached in a, in a different way before. And what do those programs entail and how long do they go for and who are some of your clients? Well, let's start with the last one. So right now we're working with uh, IBM over in New York. We, we were meant to be going there two, three weeks ago. But yeah. Obviously, with, with everything that's been happening, that's been a big no-go. So we've had to yeah, um, yeah. reinvent the entire program to be online. Uh, but we're working with IBM's social marketing team, basically trying to establish this practice, the social practice. We are being a part of the way that that team works together. So what we're doing with them is we're basically setting up their rituals, their routines, uh, and how they talk to each other, when they talk mm. to each other, what is the what is the, the, the kind of questions they want to ask one another uh, in terms of their own relationships as a group. Yeah. And then as individuals, offering them 10-day, 20-day practices around physicality, around mindfulness, and around empathy, which will yeah. entail everything from moving your body to creative writing to meditation as a way to then you know cultivate these deeper skills around us as human beings. That's a six-week program. Yeah. And then at the end of that, what um, we're working with them too is articulating that that quote unquote way of working as a cultural asset to how that team operates. When we just started chatting before we hit record on this podcast, we were talking about how it's caused you to be, be a little more mindful as an individual and mindful to what your responsibilities are as a person, as a human, as a dad, you know, as a professional towards yourself and to others. I find your program, it seems to me, it acknowledges to be successful isn't just to look at one aspect of our lives. It's to ensure that everything is in harmony. The whole idea is about training deep skills, right? So, and the best way to train a deep skill is to embody it, which means to physically experience it. And so, mm. for example, if we're talking about training the skill of focus as a deep skill, what we'll ask people to do is we'll give them a series of different um, breathing exercises that are very, very much about focusing on one's breath and how the breath is being moved through your body. And we'll yeah, structure yeah. this in 10 or 20 day challenges with a reflection practice that is built into the actual breathing practice. So for example, you'll, you'll spend five minutes doing a box breathing exercise, which is four breaths in, four, four count hold, four count out, and then a four count hold. And you do yeah, that for yeah. a couple of minutes and then you reflect on where you found the breath turning up in, yeah. in, in your mind and in your body. And then if, if focus isn't the thing you're trying to build, maybe it's something like resilience. So for resilience, we'll use um, a standard plank. So like the high plank, top of the push-up position, and it's a 10-day challenge. You start with one minute, and then every day you choose to add on either 15 seconds, 30 seconds, or another minute, and you do that for 10 days in a row. And the idea here isn't to... Uh, to succeed or to fail, but is to show up, right? Yeah, so yeah. regardless of the, of the outcome, you're showing up for the practice. And it could be you get to three minutes or four minutes and you fall on your face, but yeah. you kind of get back up and you do the other 30 seconds. People, and marketing can be blamed for this, often confuse joy and happiness to be the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Right? 
So it's, what's, what's interesting about that is that um, happiness can be defined. You, you can get happy from having an ice cream. You can get happy from you know taking coke. You can get happy from you know, yeah. all these different kind of materialistic things that will spike dopamine in your body. But then when you talk about joy, so mm. what's joy coming from? Joy is usually things like love. Yeah. Right? It's compassion. It's the formless ideas that make you feel what you just described. So joy is also something that is chemically, um, I guess, substanced as uh, serotonin. Serotonin and, was what I was looking for. <laughs> right, right. And what's interesting yeah, yeah. Is, that, is that serotonin and dopamine are actually kind of chemical opposites. They can't, mm. they can't, can't really work together. And so what we're trying to do is through um, a physical practice by focusing on uh, giving a deep skill, a shape around that practice is cultivating this sense of joy, right? Mm -hmm. That through progress, you can cultivate joy and through joy, you can feel, um, you can feel some kind of growth, but at the same Mm -hmm. time, become more skillful at being focused, become more skillful at being resilient. And it's, it's, it's that kind of thing that businesses for the longest time have had such a problem with addressing and giving credence because it doesn't have a quantification around it. I guess it's an outcomes-based scenario. If you see improvements in outcomes, then that's how mm-hmm. you quantify quantify the success of the program. If people are happier and they're producing better work, then hey, something something something's working, right? Right, right. Yeah, and like yeah. in today in today's world now too, like with you know mental health and well-being become much more of a topic around organizations, and, and the mm-hmm. language becoming more acceptable in terms of even addressing it, I'm really curious and excited to see like how can people, you know, really live into the, the trope of bring all of yourself to work. And in that, you know, kind of means how are you working on yourself in a way that's non-judgmental, non-attachment, but also at the same time, um, really compassionate of like how you can be as a, um, as a, as a, as an emotional, intellectual and intuitive human being. Because that's 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 what businesses, your business or any business, obviously wants to have helping solve the problems. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I love your. You've got this mission statement almost on your website, and it's we believe professional growth comes from personal growth. Growth takes humility and effort. We're brave together. You are what you practice. And you believe in leading by example. I mean, everything you've described ladders back to those beliefs or those values beautifully. I, I really, really love that. I think professional growth comes from personal growth. That's what it's really all about, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. So we roll deep. What's um, what's we roll deep and what do you do? Yeah. So uh, that, what's funny about that is like that. It's not a jujitsu. It's not a jujitsu <laughs> metaphor. Well, what, what's, what's, what's interesting about that? Because um, yeah. so here's what happened, right? So I was, I was at Big Spaceship and I just started um, training in jujitsu, and I was just blown away by it. Like everything I thought about martial arts. Oh, so it just, is. <laughs> there is a yeah, jujitsu. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, it's totally. Like, you it's, yeah, it, yeah. You know, for for anyone who's practiced martial arts, like jujitsu was just it just broke down all the Hollywood conventions of, 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 you know, martial arts and combat and all that kind of stuff. And I was enamored by it. And so I was like, Hey, like every white belt out there, I'm going to start a brand and build t-shirts and do this thing. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so I wanted to, I created this thing called roll deep and it was initially going to be a, um, like just a, a just a, a jujitsu brand. I was going to create my own kind of like 
material and swag and that kind of thing. And then what happened was at the very same time, I was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to go and start my own consultancy because the time is right for that now. And yeah. my wife said to me, like, just use that name because you've created the brand logos and stuff. Just use yeah. that for your consultancy. I was like, yeah, that's that's cool. Yeah. So I did that. And it, it, my jujitsu brand became my, my consultancy brand. But um, I love that. I love Brawl Deep. I love the analogy, even if it does have roots in jujitsu, being a jujitsu brand, tackling business <laughs> problems, literally tackling them. Um, and going deep into the insights, there's so much, man. There's so much that yeah. works in that name. It's, it's really cool. <laughs> so, yeah, so um, that became me just taking everything I knew about the world of data from my experience and rolling it into just uh, a simple consultancy package, which really, is, which really is going into organizations and helping them define their culture of data. Um, yeah. By that, I mean, like, like what, are the, what, are the, what are the arts? What are the artifacts? What are the rituals? How do people talk about data? How is it, man mm-hmm. it manifesting? And what I love doing with, with companies is I'll create this thing called an organizational insights map, which is kind of mm-hmm. like if you, were go, if you were to go to a physio and a physio were to look at, like, you know, what, what's wrong or what's out of alignment and, and where maybe the, the tension points are in your body, it's kind mm-hmm. of that, but for organizations oh, and, and their data. Do you help organizations with things like brand health? You know, our funnel is awareness, consideration, recommendation. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we track that two dips a year, uh, which coincides with our key recruitment periods. Yep. Um, Is that the sort of thing you can help organizations with, or is it more looking at all of that stuff, the brand Mm -hmm. health, the lead gen data, the audience data, even macro data, and then pulling it all together, is it? Yeah, it's it's, so... It's kind of both sides of the coin. So there's, so what I mean by that, I mean, there's the, the approach of brand health tracking and the science behind that and like the rigor of that and what that looks like, like even augmenting that data with different data sources. So it becomes more felt. Um, so in the past, like using traditional brand trackers, but then mapping social, social data around that. So you get a feeling of what uh, your, your audience yeah. it means by, by like, Hey, we're innovative. Hey, we're, we're technology driven. Like all those kinds of terms, you, you put feeling around them. And so, mm-hmm. so yes, doing that is, is a part of my experience, um, back in the past with Leo's and, and Wonderman. And then the other side of the coin is going, okay, now, now that we have that story and that narrative, how do we then bring that insight into the organ, the organism that is the company? The- Ah, right, right. I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, where are the connection points in terms of um, the people who need to know about this? How they make decisions around it? What is the conversation that exists around this data? Mm. And if, if that's a conversation, why is that the conversation and where is it going? So yeah. often what I see is that there'll be amazing analysts, data scientists, marketing strategists doing great practice work. And then it comes into the organization and it falls down at the human level. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because one thing, one aspect, so we've, let's just take brand health, for example. That is a snapshot. That is a an indication of what it is we're currently doing. It's a snapshot of the status quo. And it's it's, it's reflective or um, retrospective in a, in a sense because, um, you know, a year's worth of planning and and execution has gone into this and then to be able to deliver this result whereas what you're saying and hence your Cairo analogy or your physio analogy it's a snapshot of what's happening inside of us right because if you think about it like in that sense like if you're if your senses your hearing your taste your sight you know and your smell 
are all working great. So you've got a great brand tracker. You've got great visibility for the data. But mm. your nervous system isn't connecting that information to where it needs to go. It's kind of mm. like, ah, it's like it's not it, you're not maximizing the actual use of the intelligence. It's just kind of stuck in your head. So yeah. what, I, what, what I love doing is taking, okay, what is the quality of that intelligence? And kind of going... Where are the blocks, breakages, and blind spots within the organization that need to be treated first as a, as a, as a way of triage so that the information that we're having can be used in its most important format? So mm-hmm. like a, a block would be like, a, hey, we have two departments who have, who have uh, different objectives. You know, one's about brand, one's is about sales. And because of that, they're not talking to each other. But if they did, how could they do that? What would the language be around that conversation? And what would that mean if they found 10% agreement on something? Like breaking down those blocks. And, you know, breakages. Maybe our technology isn't working as well as it could. It's broken and we need to upgrade that. Or it's just an outright blind spot. We don't have visibility to this... um, sector of information or the spectrum of information because we're not, we've never looked in that in that direction before and so we're blind yeah. to what's happening in this industry and kind of dealing with that yeah and who are some of the clients you're working with uh, for we roll deep so most of them funny enough are actually based in the states and the uk so yeah when i when i got back here um i preferred to work with uh companies overseas for two reasons one like the I, I love adventure, so I love going traveling and like working with people um, in different countries and markets. Because I just that's my personal passion. Uh, mm-hmm. And the second and the second reason was like the the exchange rate is so much stronger with the USD yeah. and the pound, <laughs> just on yeah. a practical <laughs> basis. But um, working with uh, independent agencies, network agencies, and then um, one large organization based in Europe, uh, helping them launch projects in a i'll quote it like a data-driven way um Mm. so that they can basically realize the 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 value of all the data that they had um Mm. so yeah everything from like you know a 50 person shop to you know a a ten thousand person and is it mostly marketing departments you're dealing with directly or is it sales for the smaller organizations, it's it's usually the the leadership of the company, and then for mm. the bigger places, it would, would would be someone who's in charge of a marketing space. Yeah. That's, usually, that's yeah. usually where where it begins. And and do they share a lot of their marketing data? The sharing is usually well overseas before all this happened with, with COVID and stuff, and before GDPR, it was it was pretty good. Like people were having to share samples of raw data mm. as well as talk as reporting. So like, yeah. here's what's happening with the metrics. Here's the methodology. Here's the reporting. Do you do your own data collection, like qual and quant and all that stuff? Do you sort of go out or you leave that to someone else? For me, it's, it's usually about the diagnosis. So looking at yeah, like, sure. Yeah, sure. what is the tool? What is the methodology? And then what is, how is yeah. that being used as opposed to the, the raw data collection itself? Like, yeah, unless yeah. unless it's in like the the digital sphere, so whether it's like Google Analytics or social or sure. you know, search yeah. data, then yeah. Let's say five years ago there was this whole data kills creativity nonsense. Do you think mm-hmm. that discourse has gone now? I think people have come to realize that it's not one or the other, but yeah, how how to blend the two has become more the tricky the tricky question. It sort of grinds my gears a little bit, and it, it mm. goes to a deeper problem. The the reluctance to acknowledge that we are a marketing function. A CMO is spending a lot of money. They've got their business objectives handed to them. We The marketing comes in halfway through. We're not inventing the business objectives. We, we come in at the halfway point. First, we've got to orient the company towards 
understanding their market. And then we've got to do the market research. Then there's the segmentation, targeting, positioning. Then we talk to the agency after this positioning. How are we going to sort of develop some tactics, the four Ps? Advertising is a function of that. But no one talks about it. You guys in... You guys in strategy do. You guys live and breathe it. But you talk to the, f- the friggin' pimply-faced art director. He thinks he's going to be making films in Hollywood. Do you know? Yeah, he's not working in. He's not working in marketing, man. It'd be like someone being in the military thinking they're a fucking florist. Do you know? It's like, mate, you've got a gun in your hand, not a fucking bouquet yeah. of flowers. It's just really staggering, you know. So, and 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 hence, if marketing is about understanding your market, how, how you do it with data you know so i don't know man like it's just that's a bit of a rant i know but i just right. i've never understood the the why there was ever this nonsense tension between data and creativity I, i've never yeah. understood it. anyway you're better at talking about that than i am <laughs> no dude i love it i love it it makes a lot yeah. of sense and i hear you I, I hear you like what i like what i've seen in the past is that bigger networks in a time gone by have gotten their hands on customer and transactional databases of big organizations and yeah. through, through that built a huge retainer business. And because they have ownership of the, that data asset, it makes them indispensable. And I can see how agencies built on that narrative can then go, well, you know, we have, we have the ability to go upstream, you know, mm-hmm. and, so, and, and try to make that push whilst the, the client is really paying them to make advertising and marketing. And yeah. so those companies are kind of in the past now. So more and more so, the craft, the craft of marketing needs to kind of be the focus of those working in marketing. I think every single person who wants to work in advertising should understand the fundamentals of marketing. I really do. And even at the very least, just like a, what you explained just then, like, hey, here's the industry you're working in. This is how it works. All the decisions are made here. We're coming here. And here's, what, here's what we have to do. You know what I mean? Like as a basic, this is what you signed up for. And, you know, because like with yeah. me and I think most people, you kind of fall into advertising. With, yeah, well, with I grand, did as well. Grand hopes. I had grand aspirations to to be like Taika Waititi holding an Academy Award. I was that guy. I really was. Yeah. I think it wasn't until I got into my 50th wobbler that I realized I was working in marketing and my dreams and hopes of Hollywood were long gone. <laughs> like, oh, maybe that's not going to happen here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's so funny, man. So um, what does a day look like for you? A while ago, I, was, I, was, I asked myself this question of what does my perfect day look like? Mm. And the reason why I asked this question is because I was, I was tired of feeling like all my days were kind of out of control. And yeah. so um, I asked myself, so, hey, what would my perfect day look like? And what would it actually look like? And the exercise I did was I wrote down like my day hour by hour and half an hour blocks actually and then imagined what would I be doing in those hours? And it wasn't like, hey, I'm going to go down to the beach and just lie on the beach and do nothing. It was like, oh, I'll wake up, I'll make breakfast for the kids, and then maybe I'll do some you know, training, and then I'll come home, and then I'll start getting ready for work. And it kind of listed it out like that. Mm-hmm. And I looked at that, and I thought, huh, like if I were able to do that every day, I'd be really happy about that. And yeah, so yeah. that became the model of like a perfect day. And mm-hmm. for me, it's, it's a very... Um, it's not anything special. It's basically a lot of practice in different areas of life. So, you know, there is creative practice, there's physical practice, there's spending time with the kids in a way that, you know, I feel might be meaningful for them. It's, um, you know, looking at the business, doing the finance work. It's, it's that kind of stuff, but yeah. it's, it's a, it's a repetition in a direction. Right. Mm. And so, yeah, so that's, 
my 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 perfect day is a day of of, of very ordinary practices. <laughs> All of those practices are leading towards some mission. And where did that come from? And the perfect day being one where you get to practice. For some people, that might be their idea of hell. You know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but for others, that's their sense of fulfillment. You can be stagnant water or you can be constantly moving. I met a friend who I've known for a very long time. We've known each other since primary school. And he said, man, why are you always trying and doing new things? And I said, because if I didn't, I wouldn't be me, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and it sounds yeah. profound, but it's not meant to be. It's just, that's just mm-hmm. who I am. And I've been that way since I was a kid. It's like a patchwork, man, like... Of course, the parents play a part of it. The upbringing plays a part of it. Like growing up, we didn't have a lot, and it was a strict household, and so everything had to have mm-hmm. purpose and meaning, and everything had to be done in a way. Um, and so there was a discipline in that. And yeah. there was, you know, growing up in life, growing up fast, having kids young, you have to be disciplined about those things. So yeah. there's a discipline in that. Everything's and, considered. You can't muck about with superfluous decision making right everything has to have an outcome yeah i get that right. I, I've, I've done that myself yeah the the purpose purposefulness of what you're doing is important there's this book called the artist's way and it's like a 12-week well they call it like a 12-week rehabilitation for creativity and i've never considered myself as a creative person but mm. the the 12 weeks of basically doing morning pages and inquiring into your creativity really helped me establish a practice around creativity and actually how, how to do that in a disciplined fashion. And so yeah. when, when you ask, like, where does it come from? It kind of comes from all these different sources, but really the common thread there is, is there's a, there's a, there's a discipline and I'm attracted to the idea of, you know, if, even if I don't know what the outcome's going to be, if I practice this thing every day, the fruit of your labor, so to speak, becomes evident. If I'm if I'm writing every day, like that's going to make me mm. have more help me have more ideas. If I'm running every day, then that's going to you know help me you know get fitter, not just be mm. fitter, but also to feel better. You you talked about creativity. I think you're incredibly creative, and I especially love the two ventures you, you you've started. What they stand for mm. is hugely creative. How do you beat creative block though? Like if you ever get stuck for a, a creative idea, my habit is to then go to movement. So one of my like I think that I love to do is like um, I'll, I'll set some time aside most nights and just put on some headphones put on some music that feels like I can move to it and just kind of take myself into my own like movement flow so a combination yeah. of like you know martial arts and yoga and just and not expect anything from it and just have it to be my time the equation for creative blocks for me is um, is usually sunshine music movement and not expecting anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so I trust that something will come. And I think that's a big yeah. part of the, the, the journey for anyone in creative pursuit is having faith that the practice and the process will emerge something. So there's no surprise that the things, that, the very things that make us human, walking, we walked out of Africa and we wound mm-hmm. up in friggin' Siberia and beyond, mm-hmm. you know, like we've mm-hmm. been doing this for a long time. So let's just get back to basics, man, you know. Nature is a great therapy, man. Like... Yeah, you know I mean, spend time, spend time with and in nature, is, uh, is 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 one of the things that this COVID situation has made apparent to me. Once again, it's like you know, the fact that I can I can go and be close to nature has been such a great therapy for this time of loss of like all these other things that I could have been doing I can't do anymore. But it's cool. Something happens when you sit by the ocean and you're like, uh, you know, it's all right. 
In terms of other side hustles, do you you sound like you got your hands full? <laughs> there, there's, there's a few bits going on. Like there's little like spinoffs. Like one thing that I'm, I'm, I've just started doing is as a result of doing the um, the yoga instructor course, my intention with that was to hold um, movement workshops for men. There's this weird thing with yoga and men, right? Um, and I won't go into it too much, but what I do believe is that the practice of movement and uh, working with guys to use movement as a way to get into their feelings and their emotions and maybe things that they're holding on to um, without being therapy, but being more movement orientated uh, could be a real gift. And so what I've started doing on a weekly basis is I'm working with a few guys who are in London and just doing like half hour, 45 minute basic movement sessions where we'll do some really simple movement, hold some movements, we'll breathe, and then we have a little bit of a reflection on that time. And really it's just cultivating a safe space for guys to actually just work on themselves. Mm. Um, so yeah, so that's like, I'm calling that deep moves. Deep moves, and yeah. We're just using that as a way to just cultivate a practice for, for guys and movement. Uh, do you think that's why a lot of people find jujitsu because of how confronting it is and how vulnerable you feel? It's like all martial arts, really, but I think there is yes. something something about jujitsu that tends to unlock this acceptance of being vulnerable, the acceptance of being almost childlike and helpless. Yes. I've only done a few lessons of jujitsu. My background's in striking and muay thai and kyokushin karate, but there's something that is very confronting about jujitsu and it's everything from how i feel about being so close to other men yes. how i feel about showing any form of physical insecurity or uncomfort it's mm. really confronting it really is and to be able to embrace that and say hey yeah i'm a white belt like you we both feel really weird hugging each other and rolling around with each other but there's a certain bond between the two people if you can accept and acknowledge that and to be able to get over that that's yeah. the hardest thing isn't it right i think there's something also that that specifically speaks to the masculine condition is that you know i think science says that when when men or, or, or guys are confronted with emotion what we'll tend to do is we'll tend to move it into a part of our brain that tells our body to do something. Yeah. yeah, so it's like, oh, I've got to do something with this. With females, generally speaking, when they feel emotion, they'll go to the part of their brain which uses language. So they'll start to verbalize their emotions. There's this interesting dilemma of like, well, with guys, we're not as biologically equipped to articulate our emotions. So we have to use our bodies as a way to express. There's all this emotion that's going in here and just kind of getting stuck. And so yeah. how can we use our bodies as a way to unlock those emotions, even if they don't have words? Yeah, yeah. You know, and so that's, that's jujitsu does that, martial arts does that, any movement I feel does that. And so, yeah, the, the side hustle thing is, is really kind of cultivating that intention. Yeah, do you feel like that's because there aren't enough avenues out there for men to be able to talk about the things that are bothering them or the right context to be able to do so? Dude, so many, so many, like ugh, societal, cultural corporate yeah. family structures you know mm. like mm. it's we're trapped in ourselves it's a fragile thing too because all it takes is one person to to take away the safety for it to be mm. gone yeah yeah you know what i mean because guys will always default to the machismo and the you know <laughs> right right it's like oh that's not my problem it's like yeah right, and thanks thanks you just ruined it for everyone <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's such a sensitive thing. It's ironic, isn't it? In fact, we pride ourselves on being these masculine oafs that, um, you know, don't have feelings, but we, our feelings are so easily broken. You know, totally. very, very fragile. <laughs> and, you know, accepting that fragility is a big part of like, hey, you know, I don't know what's happening here. 
<laughs> yoga is incredibly confronting. My wife is absolutely fantastic at it. She took me out and said, look, give it a shot. You'll love it because I love flexibility and stretching and so on. I think naively I thought it would be quite easy. I was dying. I, it was the hardest thing ever. It was, it was so hard. I was doing those. The lactic acid was like in my thighs and I was shaking. I couldn't hold a pose. They're telling me to hold my breath. I was breathing the whole way through. Oh, man, it was it was literal torture. But I want to get back to it. So everything we discuss is incredibly deep, deep by name, deep by nature, man. We're all deep. I would love it if you could distill your philosophy, if you were to wrap that up in a little nugget of wisdom, a little bite of wisdom, what would that be? Someone once said to me that the most meaningful work you can do is the work on yourself and it will be the most terrifying thing you'll ever do. And so that in itself is a, a provocation for anyone who's been absencing themselves from their internal work to make a little bit of time for that and to be courageous in doing that because it will be of service to everyone uh, who loves you and everyone that you love. Oh, that's beautiful, man. It really is. Thank you so much for that. I, I think many listeners will find that incredibly useful, especially during these times when we have the opportunity to reflect and really get to the heart of who we are as people and what it is that drives us. Yeah, Thank right you, on. Tony. Thank, thank you. I... um won't take too much more of your time because I know you've got a beautiful family to attend to and look after so and and probably some work to do as well so where can people find out more about you where can people find out more about the dojo and yeah, yeah. Um, we roll deep yeah I guess the, the best place is just to you know track me down on LinkedIn just Tony Clement um, everything is kind of there about you know where I work with the dojo roll deep there's websites there like you know the dojo.team and we've rolled deep.com. If there's anyone out there that has found this of any use uh, and wants to get in touch to chat, always happy to talk and share and to hear and to listen. Tony Clement, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much again. I hope I don't wait 15 years before I speak to you in person <laughs> again. Dude. I'd actually like to uh, shake your hand, give you a big hug. And Me too. I, I don't drink beer. Uh, well, I don't drink anymore at all. But I'd love to share a soda water or something with you, man. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, neither do I. So two soda waters, then. <laughs> two soda waters, it is. All right, James. Thank you. Thank you so much, hey. dude. Cheers, man. See ya. All right. See ya. If you'd like to find out more about me or the B Side podcast, please visit jamesbside.com. That's one word jamesbside.com and you can follow me on instagram at bside podcast if you have any suggestions or feedback on the show please email me at hello at jamesbside.com and don't forget to rate review and subscribe the b-side with james barrow is produced by me and i really hope it's helped unlock your creative potential thanks for listening and until next episode cheers <laughs>